Dear Zack Snyder, thank you. Thank you for 300. Thank you for The Watchmen. Thank you for Man of Steel. Thank you for Batman vs. Superman. That wasn't easy to say, and I'll probably be invited out a few less times this week for saying it, but it needed to be said. Of auteurist action movies, Christopher Nolan's are the obvious and popular choice. But here at the yippie du cinema, we live in growing fear that one of the medium's brightest minds is being relegated to some corner of pop culture punchlines that could snuff it out forever. His quest stands upon the edge of a knife, and depending on how Justice League goes this weekend and in the holiday weekends to follow, we'll soon know whether we were worthy of Mr. Snyder's artistry or no. So, this is an open love letter to Zack Snyder, but we hope you read it too. 300. It seems like we all pretty much agreed that 300 was great. Though that wasn't always the case, and it it took some of our top critics more time than seems healthy to come around to Mr. Snyder's revolutionary tactics. It was smart, exciting, visually revolutionary, endlessly quotable, proved his ability to reinvigorate and reimagine a myth, and pretty much ensured us another decade of Gerard Butler flicks. Take that for what you will. It will forever be the first touchstone we have for the inside of Mr. Snyder's brain, a set of images and idiosyncrasies as ingrained in the story and the fabric of popular culture as anything short of Star Wars. Thank you for 300, Mr. Snyder. The Watchmen. It was the film you'd all been waiting for, and one that even now, eight years later, popular culture seems split on. It's either too much like the original, says Devin Gordon of Newsweek, or not enough like it, say most upper-level to diehard-level fans. I suppose most of the world agreed that the cinema of it, the effects, the color, the visual art of it was rather immaculate. And yes, that's the source material, and the endless team of effects wizards, and the, you know, 28 years of development hellfire the property was tempered in, but you can't watch The Watchmen without being very aware that it is the product of a post-300 world. Forget for a moment that I know who Nat King Cole is because of the opening of this film. Forget for a moment that it did more for the proliferation of Kurt Vile, the real Kurt Vile's music, than anything this century. Forget for a moment that when I'm not voicing surprisingly minority opinions here, I'm a folk singer who bought his first Bob Dylan single after watching the title sequence of this film. Forget the Breck touchstones. Forget that it gave us the gift of Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Sorry, Supernatural and Grey's Anatomy fans, but it did. This film brought a tangible sense of the Cold War to a generation that had never lived through it. From the doomsday clock to a Nixon dynasty, the history and alt-history of late capitalism jumped off the page and into the subconscious of a millennial generation just beginning to wrestle with the big questions. And yeah, those ideas are the script, that's Miller. But the tangibility, the memorability of it, is all Snyder. I have a hard time thinking of a more visceral look at the Vietnam War with the exception of the few great epics on the subject. But Apocalypse Now is two and a half hours long. Redux is twice that. Watchmen captures at least the essence of the fear and the evil of that war in a flashback. A goddamn flashback. The sheer weight of the disparate philosophical, political, economic, historical, and mythological sinew of the story should have crushed anyone trying to pull it off the page. And it did, for nearly 30 years. But Snyder's adaptation not only managed to get made something that had proved a quixotic quest for even filmmakers of Terry Gilliam's stature. Wink. But it treads every line of action, adventure, sci-fi, romance, rock and roll, film, and educational historical epic. It's a weighty picture. It's neither simple pop culture fare nor a creation of the art house, and thus somehow more than both. 
Thank you for the Watchman, Mr. Snyder. Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul. Weird choice coming off of Watchmen. It was uh, certainly a motion picture. Uh, dear Tina Fey, thank you for your Legend of the Guardians, the Owls of Gahul, Matt Damon in-flight movie joke. Sucker Punch. I actually watched Sucker Punch as an in-flight movie, but I assure you that won't affect my thoughts on it. It was pretty terrible. Rather, one long perversion of any burgeoning girl power predilections in the Hollywood of 2010, the whole thing looks like some straight-to-DVD director with a large budget Saw 300 and not The Watchmen and tried to ape it. Nothing worse than being a parody of yourself. Dear Mr. Snyder, thank you for the offer, but no. Man of Steel. A lot of people didn't like it? Uh, that, that blew my mind. They say Cavill was stiff. They say the movie should have been more fun. Ty Burr at the Boston Globe even goes so far as to decry its lack of, quote, pop joy. And I'm tempted to forgive that. They didn't know what Snyder was building. They perhaps hoped the darkness of the Dark Knight had received enough acclaim to be put behind us, that the would-be cleverness of Superman Returns would teach Warner Brothers to give us a movie with our perfect golden boy having some laughs, some power struggles, and a whole lot of the American way. But... Even after Batman v Superman, it seems popular culture is yet to give Snyder's DC Universe the complete awe it deserves. We'll get into most of this in the next section, but Man of Steel was the beginning of it all. From the very first frames, it should be clear that this is a different kind of film. It's not Nolan's hyper-realism or Christopher Reeve's bright-eyed cartoon magic. From the first moments of Russell Crowe as Jor-El's kingly stare across the strange and overpowering landscape of his doomed and beautiful world, this is an epic. An epic in the classic mythological sense. There are dragons and volcanoes and queens and dark noblemen all in the first eight minutes. Superman always had the latticework of an epic hero, orphaned, hidden behind a secret identity even he believes, powers he knows not of. Sure, but who doesn't these days? That could just as easily translate into the technicolor teen dreams of Spider-Man Homecoming. But from the very first moment of the DC expanded universe, Snyder's telling us that this is a world of ancient magics. Legacy come from beyond the grave, gods and monsters. Does that make it a little heavier than its predecessors? Sure. But that's the point. It seems more and more that we long for old-fashioned superheroes, technicolor gods quick with a joke and to light up Supreme Leader Snoke, but with just a little more self-awareness and woke-as-fuck meta-humor than they would have had two decades ago. Yet with the same breath, we bemoan the conspicuous lack of Hollywood auteurs. Give the greats a big budget, they'll make history, the studios are too afraid of those artists. Look at Edgar Wright and Ant-Man, Lord and Miller and Solo. But if Hollywood's making endless tentpole picks, then... Isn't that the best way in? They make tons of them. They're all a little different. Isn't something as straightforward as the first Thor a great counterpoint for something like Man of Steel? Something for everyone, and altruism lives. Cinematic universes are a perfect system for this. That Marvel can give us Winter Soldier and Homecoming is the system working the way it's supposed to. Imagine a, a rom-com Hawkgirl countered to Nolan's The Dark Knight. That'd be cool. It's something they were trying to little effect with Suicide Squad. So Cavill seems a little slow. Well, how wonderful that Superman isn't a genius and vulnerable hunk of hero. A big part of him is that he's a kind of average Kryptonian who just got lucky to land on a planet of physically inferior beings. 
His body is super, but his soul and mind are human. And that takes some adjusting, some learning. He's not the brightest tool in the canon. They say the fight's absurd, the big climactic end battle, and yeah, it's a big one, and yeah, Superman would have done everything he could to get it away from Metropolis, and that's what makes it compelling. Multiple times we see him try to fly away and draw General Zod with him, but Zod doesn't let it happen, knowing that the innocent will be a liability for Cal, and an advantage for him, not to mention that it sets up pretty much all of BVS. The fact that the word terraform is never used, but that, that that's the world-ending danger we face is delightful. That it's not kryptonite, but his own native atmosphere that weakens Clark is brilliant. My god, the psychological after-effects of that alone. Watching Henry Cavill realize that he has to kill Zod is probably one of the most heartbreaking moments in all of super cinema. Second only to the sound he makes when he does it. His moral code, the extinction of the people he's only just begun to know, there's so much that makes that wild. But for me, the most powerful part is that he tries so hard to find another way. We watch him search desperately, even as he closes his arms around Zod's neck for any way, any other way to end this. Zod sees that and forces his hand, but I've always felt that Clark must know that if he was a little faster, a little smarter, he could have found another way. But he's not smarter, and he's not especially special, except that he's essentially a moral actor with general imperviability. That's our greatest hero, an average Joe who wants to be more, and happens to be bulletproof. I bet Batman, though, could have found it another way. Snyder's singular sense of a divine struggle begins here, and we should all be so thankful that it did. We so long for alterist Hollywood just as long as it doesn't take too long or make us too uncomfortable, but Snyder's a big part of what we got right now. He's got all that Hollywood power, and with great power, you know... Dear Zack Snyder, thank you for Man of Steel. Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice may well be the most publicly reviled major motion picture of 2016. It's become a bit of a cultural punchline. And that's terrifying. I went into that movie just looking for a laugh, didn't have much faith in it, I'd have been told not to, and I suppose I was forgetting about the magic of Man of Steel. Within the first seven minutes, I was hooked, but constantly on guard. Here, Snyder creates a world of pure mythology, far from the what-would-it-take-to-really-become-Batman thinking of Nolan's trilogy. Snyder wrestles with what it would take to live in the same world as Superman, with a semi-divine being dropped from the sky. And that's rather a broader and darker question. From the opening shots of Thomas and Martha Wayne walking out of a Gotham theater, Snyder reminds us that we need no reminders of this story, that it is as ingrained in the fabric of our mainstream culture as anything, a legend that belongs to the people, a myth we all share. And that's the key, the myth of it all. This isn't a tale of kitschy superheroes who battle demons both literal and figurative with a catchphrase and a smile. These aren't easy myths. And when you accept that, the rest falls into place. These are the Grimm Brothers fairy tales to Marvel's literal and figurative Disney iteration. And that's great, because we probably need both. That said, the charges against BVS are many, and well-documented. The title. The amount of times I've heard people complaining that the movie isn't actually about Batman versus Superman, and that when their fight finally does take place, it's not near worthy of being the titular moment. But that's just simple-minded, folks. 
The entire premise of the picture is that Batman's out to find a Kryptonian deterrent, while Superman, masterfully manipulated by Jesse Eisenberg's Lex Luthor, sets out to curb the Bat's power and increasing ferocity. It's a spy game, a cloak-and-dagger battle, but it's definitely Batman versus Superman. Just not in the high-flying, super-punching way the title may trick you into imagining. Bruce dreamed a dream. There are a bunch of dream sequences, yes. Sort of. Writing for HuffPo and making his sixth joke about Batman sleeping, Bill Bradley asks, Is this whole movie a dream sequence? Are these all visions? Have we all been incepted? Well, Bill, no. The first of these sequences comes during the titles, as a young Bruce Wayne, underscored by Ben Affleck's grim voice, falls down a well, and then is raised back up to the light on a wind made of bats, a trick that would have come in handy in the second act of Dark Knight Rises. But whatever. Drawing ire for the in-your-face magic of its metaphor, this moment seems a perfect fit for a movie that only needs a few touchstones to remind us of a major character's mythic origins, while also underlining the mystic darkness the rest of the film will thrive on. There's a moment where the corpse of his mother seems to burst from its tomb as a giant vampire bat, which creates a sudden and rather encompassing entry into the mind of a Batman we've not yet seen on screen before. A post-Robin, post-murder-free, post-optimism Batman. The future vision. Yeah, at first you feel out of place, then you begin to piece together the events of a scene made up of giant bug desert warfare. You should feel out of place, as this isn't a dream, but a nearly prophetic moment that catapults the viewer into a new potential timeline, likely brought on by Bruce's exposure to the Flash and his speed force. The Flash and his speed force. So, yes, when we break out of the giant bug vision and find the Flash, who we've at this point heard or seen nothing about, yelling out of some sort of crack in the fabric of reality, it could be a little confusing. But isn't that the point? That many, many fans will know what's going on and follow along, while others, new to the world, will be much like Bruce is, more than a little lost. It's not a plot point moment. It's atmospheric exposition for the next film, something that the much-beloved Marvel films do all the time, but generally make a joke out of them. Like, for real, why the hell is the Collector ever mattered in those movies? And yet, we just keep going back to him, because one day, he will. But the meta-nerd charm of that is easy to swallow and move beyond. Snyder's version puts you right there with Bruce, terrified, wondering what the fuck just happened, but realizing he needs to move on to more immediate threats. The Metahuman Thesis Okay, yeah, it's a clunky title, the explanation of which is the closest the movie ever comes to eye-rolling exposition. Though it never quite gets there. The here's a bunch of videos of the cast for the next movie... Moment is often accused of being a random plot break in the middle of the film, stalling an already bloated and overlong motion picture, making it all the more bloated and overlong. But it's not. The metahuman thesis, the idea that there are lots of other super beings beyond the Man of Steel, is not just a major turning point in this world, but certainly another big catalyst for Bruce to go after Superman. His world is changing all too quickly. He's fought madmen and clowns and cops and robbers, but suddenly there are demigods and cyborgs and ancient submariner kings. Of course he's going to go after Superman, the X-Factor, the unknown. Bruce is our cipher for the baseline of humanity. And what does even the most basic superhero origin story writer clunkily remind us every time? That humanity always fears the unknown. Well, what Bruce doesn't understand just got cranked up to a thousand. Lex Mark Zuckerberg Luther. Leave Jesse alone. 
In one of the most joked-about performances since Russell Crowe's Javert, another unfairly assailed bit of artwork, by the way, Mr. Eisenberg's millennial mastermind take on Lex Luthor is, quote, a jittery, hysterical pitch performance that resembles a gnat impersonating Keith Ledger, according to Anne Hornaday of the Washington Post. There's no doubt that he's jittery, but it's perfect. To begin with, his youth is perfect for this, a spoiled child unused to change in a world that's known nothing but for the last 18 months. His childishness sets him at the center of his world, and he cannot cope with the idea that that simply may not matter. Knowledge without power is paradoxical, <laughs> yells the young Luther at a houseful of the metropolis elite. And yet, it's his youth that allows him to see far and wide to rail against Superman with the dogmatic and singular vision of untamed youth. And sure, that's all nice on paper, you'll say, but was he any good? And uh, yeah, yes he was. Eisenberg goes big, unhinged, paranoid, and incredibly focused. A combination that of course fits a future criminal mastermind. He can't be the cool, public-faced Luther we're used to because this is his first experience of being overpowered and outdone. Of course it drives him mad, but he'll cool his heels in the slammer for a bit, adjust to the new world order, and come out with the perfected veneer needed to continue his perverse works. Eisenberg's ability to balance the childishness, commanding power, and ability to go as far into the mythic madness of his characters, cavil into the prodigal supersun elements of his own, is wonderful. And it's no small moment of culturally aware casting to bring in the fictional face of Mark Zuckerberg, to remind us how easily those things we take for granted, we trust and rely on, can turn against us. Luther's the golden boy of Metropolis, until he goes too far. Die the hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain and all. And that may be Eisenberg's crowning achievement with Luther, that through it all, he still manages to summon the tragic elements of the man, mirroring both the orphan psychology of Wayne and Kent, with more than a healthy dose of the did I even know my father that carries Kyle so well through the second half of Man of Steel. Doomsday and Kryptonite. Why would Lois Lane know that the green spear thing Batman threatened Superman with could kill the big boss monster thing? Uh, why wouldn't she? The monster's clearly Kryptonian. She sees it come out of the Kryptonian ship. Super strong, laser eyes. That's the only possible example of super being Earth has yet known. But even more than that, if you saw Superman get his ass kicked, and then needed to kick someone else's ass, of course your first move would be to grab whatever Superman was hit with. Anything that can take down Superman, I want one too. Martha. I'll admit, it took me out of the film to the point where I, on the spot, googled to see if that was some crazy plot point worked into the film in an attempt to hasten reconciliation and speed the premise. It wasn't. Batman and Superman's mom's have canonically had the same name for decades. That's quite strange, but it's an old-school DC problem, not Mr. Snyder's. It's a narrative idiosyncrasy that Snyder seizes on. He reminds us many, many times as we go along that Martha Wayne's name is Martha Wayne, and helps us to remember that Diane Lane's a Martha, too. It's a strange moment, one that arguably doesn't work if someone needs to pull out their phone in the midst of it to Wikipedia just how stupid it is, that said, once you accept that they do indeed have mothers with the same name, it's kind of great. Highlighting their shared humanity, dispelling some of Cal's alienness, and underlining yet again the myth of it all. Mother legends are as old as anything, from Isis and Mary right on down to the Marthas. Employing this most human of archetypes allowed Snyder to both bring the heroes down to Earth, while embedding the narrative even deeper into the bedrock of large-scale mythic structures. And that... 
Despite all the near-unbelievable reconnaissance done on the heroes, Luther overlooks, of course, the human side of Bruce. Maybe it's a little jarring. It's certainly a big coincidence. But maybe that's the point. That in the midst of this divine battle, it's the unforeseen bits of humanity that save us. It probably should be jarring. It's just so dark. At the end of the day, though, the biggest criticism has always been that it's long and heavy and dark. The amount of critics up in arms that it wasn't a more straightforward, quote, popcorn entertainment is actually frightening, because why should it be? I was more entertained by this film the fourth time I saw it than any outing I've had with Civil War, Marvel's installment of the same season. We want more alters in Hollywood, and Hollywood's making big superhero picks. Isn't something like BVS the best of both worlds, a truly intelligent auteurist film that Hollywood threw its considerable weight behind. Of course, you'll say, what's it matter if the movie doesn't work, if it's not enjoyable? But I, I guess that's the scariest part of it all. I had a yabba dabba do time. And by any other standard, BVS is a blast. From the cinematographic mastery of the film's early moments as Bruce picks his way through the smoke and pulverized cement of Metropolis to the detail of the film's nonlinear jumps through time and dimension and to the simple storytelling of Clark and Lois in the bath. It's a great film. I hold that we've been spoiled by the often wonderful, often simple faux intelligence of much of the recent Marvel canon. Our current standard of adventure film is one that draws you in with bright colors, instantly suspending your belief to a magic land where of course wonderful things can happen, but danger is never really around. Where a series of expository lines and in-your-face images hold your hand all the way through to a neatly tied metaphoric conclusion, hoodwinking you into the false belief that the characters were transmuted into detailed representations of something, that they've gone on a journey, come to the end, and you were there with them almost every step of the way. Amalgams of pop psychology, simplistic easter egg metaphor, and a baseline emotional manipulation. Superhero movies are easy. They've been aimed at the lowest common denominator, and so, in some ways, betray their tradition. Heroic epics are rarely simple, and have drawn some of the most enduring scholarship and criticism of any story form in history. From our shifting understanding of the Aesir of Northern Epic to Beowulf to Perseus to Anansi the Spider, heroes are never simple. And that's what Mr. Snyder has created here, a world of gods and monsters not removed from our own, but set within it. Forcing the question, what would we really do? It doesn't hold your hand through Bruce's idiosyncratic morality, never allows Alfred a simple explanation of a character's motives. No, some men just want to watch the world burn. Lois doesn't have a soliloquy on the psychological ramifications of Cal's guilt around the death of General Zod, but it's all there in the fabric of the world Snyder summoned with light and music and swooping cameras. You just have to watch the movie to see it. But watch the movie. You wouldn't be angry at Bergman for asking you to read between the lines or Fellini for jumping from one perception of reality to the next, but because this film was so different from its occasionally simplistic counterparts from the shop across the street, it becomes a cultural joke. And yes, it's very possible that the vast majority of people walking into BVS on opening weekend, or even into Justice League tonight, have no perception of how they'd feel about Fellini or Bergman, or even Woody Allen's ripoffs of Fellini and Bergman, but is that true of the critics that buried this film as well? Yeah, I, I guess it probably could be. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you need to have a monthly screening of La Dolce Vita in conversation with the great beauty every month, but if you've never sat through a film that asks you to make your own way through it, You've sat through a very limited selection of films. It's following that journey, not simply seeing it, that's 
the fun in movie going. And that's important because, and this is true of critics and viewers and small children on YouTube, but this is important because popular culture is perhaps the best tool we have for talking to one another. This Batman could easily be an alt-right hero, beautiful, wealthy, white masculinity set on stopping the danger he perceives at whatever cost. But in the end, he realizes that's maybe not the way to go. Whether it's one thinker sharing with the populace or as a water-cooler touchstone, better moviegoers make better members of the Republic. Because films force you to see the world beyond your own, to grapple with their ideas and ideals, and to learn to articulate your own. In this age of instant review, 24-hour hype, and the occasional echo chamber, how many of us actually experienced BBS free of the prattling of our more narrow-minded friends? If you write BVS off as heavy or mismatched or just a bad superhero movie, you're going to miss out on some of the most interesting questions posed to a culture at large in the mainstream movie house in years. From the brilliant new sequences to the struggles with faith or greater goods or chaotic goods and lawful evils, this film should be a conversation starter in a thousand directions. And it probably would have been if Guillermo del Toro had his name on it before he was famous. But because it's a superhero movie, it needs to be easy fun? No, that's what Marvel's for, what Gotham City Sirens could be for. But there is no uniform number of laughs and sophomoric psychology necessary to make a good epic. A popular one, maybe, but not a, not a good one. And it's not like we didn't have some sense of what we were in for. Man of Steel wasn't all that different. And I, I, I just wish I could say the same for the Justice League. Justice League. Pretty much everything Batman vs. Superman did right and was panned for, Justice League gets wrong. And that's precisely what we were afraid of. Since its inception, and certainly since BVS, the DC Expanded Universe has happily caved to nearly all of the short-sighted and simplistic demands of both its often lazy audience and lazier critics. From Jeremy Irons' lightning-fast betrayal of BVS, Shut up, Irons, you're a great Alfred to the heart-wrenchingly backward, faux-fourth-way feminism of Wonder Woman, which was a cynical manipulation of media by the studio made all the more terrifying because both the audience and seemingly the majority of those involved have bought into it. Perhaps the weakest moment of BVS is the awkwardly forced reminder that these films are made by a progressive studio when, on the cusp of the final battle, Wonder Woman's really fun theme song begins to play as both men, Super and Bat, remind us that she is the support of neither one but a singular actor with agency and self-determination and the like. That's all great, but we didn't need to be reminded of that. It's this tendency to cave to the demands of the latest BuzzFeed or Reddit frenzy that I fear will likely be the cause of the fall of the DCEU. So what's going on in Justice League? Well, Batman's looking for a team, Wonder Woman hangs out in London, The Flash is homeless, Cyborg's newly made, Superman's still dead, and there are suddenly giant alien bugs pretty much everyone knows about without explanation. The wonderful detail and visual emotion of BVS's Gotham is replaced by the cartoonish neon gothic playground that Tim Burton originally provided us with and has really absolutely no relation to the prior installment. There is no sense of the wider human world we're told that crime's up and everyone's sad, but there's no real look at that. Something that would be fascinating coming on the heels of a world where Superman was called before Congress and picketed, 
But no, everyone's just sad that he's gone and cool that there are new aliens. Again, without explanation. Aliens that can, of course, smell fear. The villain's a superpowered primordial evil plumbed from the depths of the Warner Brothers computer systems and given in one of maybe two genuinely enjoyable sequences a backstory clearly called from Kate Blanchett's opening of The Lord of the Rings. But it's cool. He's got to collect three rings of... No, uh, boxes of power left here when a last alliance of whatever drove him back in, quote, the first age. And, you know, that's all cool. These are super myths, after all. But that's about all we know, all we'll ever know about him. That and that he knows a guy named Darkseid. It's got a hell of a lot of jokes provided primarily by Ezra Miller's Flash, with a few thrown in thanks to the obligatorily brooding sex spot that is Aquaman. The jokes carry most of the movie, which seems counterintuitive since, you know, it's about the end of the world and Superman being dead, but whatever, Ty Burr of the Boston Globe wanted more pop joy. Unlike its predecessor, Justice League holds your hand from start to finish, even going so far as to allow Wonder Woman to psychoanalyze Batman in what should have been one of the few human-driven sequences of the film. She accuses him of only wanting to resurrect Superman because he, quote, feels guilty. Oh, yeah, they resurrect Superman, and, I mean, yeah, she's right that he feels guilty, but we knew that already. Anyone at all watching the movie got that, and it just breaks the film's fabric to declare it on the floor of the Justice League. Speaking of human scenes, they do exist. They aren't especially well shot or acted. Really, they feel like they were shot the way you'd shoot exposition, knowing you needed to save your time and money up for the big fight scenes. Problem is, this accounts for much of the first half of the movie. Uninspired camera work leaves the scenes feeling flat and the world of this film much smaller than the one before it. The actors we've already met seem to be phoning it in a bit, especially, I'm sorry to say, Mr. Affleck. Gal Gadot seems like someone told her both that she was to be in more of the film than she was, and that somehow simply embodying the sheer trendiness of fourth-wave feminism was enough to sail her to another successful turn. It's not. And more often than is comfortable, finds both her and the film relying on the same sort of girlish charm that infects her standalone, simply increasing the amount of instances wherein the tentpole film of modern feminism built its foundation upon the infantilization of its heroine, a classic, if sometimes less obvious, sexual objectification. That said, Gadot's costuming makes even less sense than usual, finding her roaming the dark streets of Gotham in skin-tight trousers and a blouse whose neckline makes her Amazonian battle armor seem, you know, kinda reasonable. Though, that just seems like a Snyder, Whedon, DC Studios oversight, probably by the men. The Amazons have some utterly illogical ideas of how to keep a super-powered alien box locked away that involves some sort of stone wall dominoes designed to kill the warriors closing them. The Atlanteans have a power structure I'm just assuming we weren't meant to think about at all, lest it all come tumbling down like the walls of an Amazonian temple meant to keep a superpowered alien box locked away. Superman comes back from the dead, races the Flash, smiles as he beats up the bad guy who, upon realizing he's losing, is eaten by his own minions as they can, once again, smell fear. This easy, moral cop-out has no place in the franchise that saw Kal-El break General Zod. It held our hands through a lack of questions, mid-level technicolor, and I'm very, very sorry to tell you this. Catchphrases. In other words, Justice League is exactly what the world asked for. 
It asked for comedy and got the middling Suicide Squad. It asked for digestible bits of trendy feminism and got Wonder Woman. A film whose take on the subject may well have set the discussion back at least seven years. Now, DC claims it will abandon plans for a truly contiguous expanded universe. Affleck is probably out of here and it'll only get worse as their box office returns get better. DC had a chance. A real chance to make really great movies. DC had a chance. A real chance to make really great movies for a built-in audience that would, of course, return no matter what. But they caved. They got scared and they caved. And what's probably the worst piece of it all, they're going to take Zack Snyder down with them. Yes, he left after shooting this one, and yes, Joss Whedon took over, and that's probably where it went wrong. Mr. Whedon's incredible, except for his superhero team-up films. Ultron was interesting enough, sort of. You can see his fingerprints all over this one. So many, in fact, it's hard to see the real story through them all. So, if you've disagreed with pretty much everything I've said thus far, Justice League is probably a great weekend choice for you. But I hope it's not. I hope it tanks, and Zack Snyder heals, and Warner Brothers lets him do what he always tries to. Make an actually great film. But my hopes are not high. So, until then, I'll continue to live with these massively minority opinions, and hope someone will still invite me out this weekend. Just not to see the Justice League. Dear Mr. Snyder, Thank you for all of your hard work and brilliance. I'm so sorry to see it slipping away. Love, the Yippie Kaye Du Cinema.